Good morning, everyone. It's nice to be back this Sunday morning. Uh, finally, I think we've been gone for three weeks, and it is beautiful January morning. It's not raining. We can be thankful for that because it looked like it was going to rain for a little while. And it is also finally 2021. 2020 is over. I think the entire world is taking a collective sigh right now because like it's it's done. 2020 is in the past. We can, whether you had a good year or a bad year in 2020, like we can look forward to the future now. We can look forward to 2021 and see what that has to offer us. I think most people, or many people at least, look around this time of year at what was their life like in the previous year? And from there, what do they want to be true of themselves in the next year? Because this is a season of newness. This is a season of regrowth. We're about to have spring come. We're kind of in the middle of winter, not here in Florida, luckily, but up north, like it's cold and ugly. I'm glad I live here. Um, but people at this time of year tend to look forward to the new year and something that they want to be true of themselves moving forward. And as Aaron read for us this morning, we're going to look at a passage out of Second Thessalonians that I think can answer a couple questions for us this morning. Number one, should I make New Year's resolutions? And if so, how? Those are the two questions that I think this passage has to answer us this morning. So let me go ahead and read it, and we'll dive in. Starting in verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every good resolve and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The first point that I want to make this morning is less of a point and more of a subtext. So what we see here, this is a passage that is a prayer. So when we come to this passage, we need to look at that and remember that Paul is praying something here. I think, unfortunately, uh, this the view of prayer that the world has is not a good one. I mean, you know, if you, all you have to do is look at Facebook or Twitter, like after a natural disaster, when somebody says praying for you, and you can see the visceral reactions that people have. I think that the world just doesn't understand prayer. They think that it's wishful thinking or sending good thoughts or good vibes um, or, you know, maybe praying so that people know that we're thinking about them. And unfortunately, they don't see what prayer actually is. And I think, unfortunately, this view of prayer has seeped into the church a little bit. I don't mean that people in the church have this view that prayer doesn't do anything. But I think that if I look at my own prayers over the past 10 to 12 years, I see a pattern of 
praying for things that either I can do myself or that all God has to do is just do a little work in my own heart. He doesn't have to do anything big to get my prayers done over the, in, the, in the course of the things that I've been praying for. But we don't remember all of the times in Scripture where it talks about what prayer did. You look at the life of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18, we can see some of the things that he prayed for and what happened as a result. First of all, he prays that the rain wouldn't come and a drought happens that causes a famine for about three years. He prays that a dead boy would be raised back to life and it happens. He prays that fire would fall from heaven and consume an altar of wood that's been soaked in water and it's incinerated instantly. When, when Elijah prayed, he expected God to work. He expected God to do big things. We look at Jesus. There's, I call it the incident of the fig tree, where he's walking along and he's hungry. He wants a snack and he sees a fig tree and there's no figs on it. Maybe it was out of season or something, but Jesus decides to use this as an illustration and he curses the fig tree and he prays and it dies in a matter of minutes. His disciples are kind of wondering about this and they ask him, what happened? Why did that work? Well, let's look at what Jesus says here in Matthew 21, verse 21 and 22. Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what you have been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive it if you do it in faith. This is what we got to remember about Elijah. There's nothing special about Elijah, except that when he prayed, he expected God to ask, to act. When he asked God for things, he expected God to do it. He prayed in faith and God responded with action. Just like Elijah, we can pray to God and God will respond powerfully. So that's our subtext for this morning before we kind of walk through the passage. The first point in the passage that I want to make is what Paul says here. What is Paul praying for? What is Paul praying for? He's praying for three things. He's praying that the church would be worthy of his calling. He's praying that God would make them worthy of their calling, that he would fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. He's praying for the power of God. He is asking that God would intervene himself in the life of this church and act and work powerfully. So the first point we're going to talk about is about God making us worthy of his calling. What does that mean? Because that sounds a little funny to us. It sounds a little funny to me because we're gospel-centered people. We know that the calling that he's talking about is the calling to life and salvation. 
I think we know that because Paul wrote other letters to the Thessalonian church. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, he says, We exhort each one of you and encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. They're going to key back and remember this from his previous letters. The calling that he's talking about is that calling to life and salvation, which is why I, I see a little tension here. Because what he's saying in our ears is that God would make us deserving of our calling. But I don't think that's actually what he's saying. I think when we think of the word deserving, we're kind of using our common, the common definition of the word, sorry, when we think of the word worthy, we're kind of using the common definition of the word worthy, which means deserving, deserving of. So if you're, if you're gonna go before your boss in your annual review and you've got your notepad and you've got all your accomplishments this year and what you're working on, you're gonna say to your boss, boss, I am worthy of a raise this year. What you're saying is, I'm deserving of a raise. I'm deserving to get more money. I am worth it. I've earned it. Give me a raise. But we can't go to God like that. We can't talk to God like that because we know that we are saved by grace. So what is he actually saying here? We know that he's talking about that uh, it's just the opposite. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 likewise says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Ecclesiastes 7.20 Surely there is not a righteous man in all the earth who does good and never sins. So we know that there is no way we will be deserving of our calling to life and salvation. It's not going to happen. But luckily, right after verse 323 in Romans comes verse 324 and 25, where he says, All are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ Jesus, whom put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. We're never going to be deserving of our salvation. So what does it mean? In this context, I think it means fitting or suitable for or appropriate. What he's asking is that God would worthify the church. That's, that's not an English word, so we can't actually say that. We're going to say he's going to make them worthy. And where I'm getting this from is that same passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, we exhort each one of you 
and encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He's charging them to walk worthy of God. Who's getting the worth in that passage? It's not the people walking. It's God. Whose worth is on display here? It's God's worth on display. So when we're using worthy in this context, we're seeing that it means he's asking for God to make them suitable or make them fitting for their calling. Paul is asking God to intervene in the lives and the hearts of this church and telling them to walk the Christian life so that it shows God's worth and God's calling and not their own. Paul says similar things all over his letters. Uh, in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 1, he tells them, walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Colossians 1.10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He's, he's saying the same thing here in these verses as he is in 2 Thessalonians uh, 1.11. He's talking about sanctification. He's not talking about their salvation here. He's not talking about them being justified. He's talking about them being made holy, being made into the image and likeness of Christ. We see this process talked about in Ephesians chapter 4 in a little bit more detail. Where Paul says, until we attain to the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves or carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning or craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Jesus is the standard for our sanctification. Jesus is the standard for our sanctification. He's the one who shows us how to walk out the Christian life. That's point number one. That's the what of this passage. What he's saying in this passage to this church in Thessalonians is this, we should rely on the power of God to sanctify us, making us into the image of Jesus by turning our resolutions into works of faith. That's the what. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about the why. Why should we do this? Why does it matter that we should make resolutions and walk more in line with the image of Christ. If you're in your notes this morning, you're a note taker, you can call this point two, or uh, if you want to organize it a different way, you can say this is why part one. I've got two points on why. Why is this matter? does this matter? 
Why should we make resolutions? So that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. Right there in verse 12. That so that is the answer, or tells us the answer. So that God will get the glory in your life. That's why Paul says that it matters. We should make resolutions so that Jesus may be glorified in you. Something I can't understate here is that if all you do this morning is take this concept, go home and make resolutions for purpose of sanctification in your life because Jesus said to, you are clearly esteeming Jesus and he is getting the glory for what you are doing. He is your highest goal and he is getting the glory for your actions. The second, I think the more important reason here is that if God does this by God's power, God gets the glory. Jesus gets the glory. Why does Jesus get the glory? Why, why, do, why, why am I saying, why is Paul saying that Jesus is getting the glory here? Because God is the one who's doing all the work. God is the one whose power we're going to be using to fulfill these resolutions. The answer to that is at the end of verse 12. The power that we're using is the power that is bought by the blood of Christ. The only way we have access to that power in God's name is through Jesus. 1 Peter 4.11 tells us this. Jesus is the one who's going to get the glory. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus bought that power through his blood, by his sacrifice on the cross for us, so that we can use that power in our lives. So that's why part one, because Jesus gets the glory in your life. What does that mean? What is the implication of that? How does that work itself out in, re, in the real world, because when people look at your life, they're going to see something different if you're walking according to Jesus in faith. They're going to see a difference in your life. And they might look at it and they might say, you guys are just really put together. You've got everything figured out. You're never worried about anything. You're never concerned. You just kind of put your feet down and you go. But what they're actually seeing is the work of Jesus in your life when they see that. They're not actually seeing a perfect marriage. 
My marriage is wonderful, but it is not free of problems and fights and trouble. Sorry, I didn't ask her permission to say that. So that may come back at me later. Any marriage is full of little fights over little things. So when people look at my marriage and say, you've got a great marriage, I'm like, okay, what you're seeing is not my marriage. What you're seeing is Jesus. Because if not for Jesus, we might not be married anymore. I don't know. We've never had a fight that bad. But still, without the work of Jesus in my life, something would have happened. I'm positive of it. That's why he gets the glory. Because when they look at you and they see his work in your life, you get to point them to him. You get to give him the glory for what he's done for you. The second reason for why we should be concerned with making resolutions is because of the second part of that verse. He says, so that the name of the Lord Jesus might be glorified in you and you in him. Now, Paul leaves out the verb here, but it's a continuation of the same thought. What he means is you are being glorified in Jesus. How does that work? We should make resolutions for the sake of our future glory. Matthew 13, 43 tells us that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, kind of in the same vein, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn, away, turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. What is he saying? Jesus is coming back someday. We just spent a month and a half going through our Advent series where we looked at the first Advent of Jesus Christ, his first coming. And we looked from there towards his second coming when he's going to make all things new, when he's going to come back and he's going to put everything to right. This passage in 2 Thessalonians definitely has that in view. We get some of the richest eschatology, talking about the end times, from Paul's letters to the Thessalonian church. He spent five verses before this and like 12 verses after this talking about the second coming. This is extremely obvious to this church that Jesus is that that Paul is talking about Jesus coming back someday. And he says that when he does, we will be glorified. Which brings an, an, another interesting question. If our glory is sure in Jesus when he comes back, then why does he tell us that we have to make resolutions? 
Romans 8.30 is this amazing passage where Paul goes through and he tells us and he gives us assurance for his salvation. He says, and those who he predestined, he also called. Those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. There's no dropouts there. There's no drop-offs. There's no walking away in that verse. If you are called, you will be justified. If you are justified, you will be glorified. So why does he say here that we have to make resolutions? He's not telling us anything new. He's telling us that our salvation is contingent upon our sanctification. He's not saying this only in this passage. There are lots of other passages. Every passage where he says that we must walk out our faith, we must walk the Christian life, we must walk worthy of the calling to which we're called, is a call telling us that our salvation is dependent upon our sanctification. But here's the thing. Here's the good news. Here's the gospel in this. Jesus can make any demand for our salvation that he wants to because he is the one who's going to fulfill that demand. Your sanctification is dependent on your salvation. Sorry, your salvation is dependent on your sanctification because Jesus is going to sanctify you. He is going to make you into his own image. This isn't a contradiction. Even though it might seem to be that it's both dependent upon our sanctification and he's going to do it. He's talking about the same thing. He's, sorry, he's not talking about the same thing. He is definitely telling us that he is going to do it because of Romans 8.30. Because he is going to justify us. He is going to be the propitiation for our sins. He is going to pay for it. He is going to bring you to a point where you are like him someday. And we get to rely on his power for that throughout our lives. So that's, that's the why. Because of our present, because of Jesus' present glory and our future glory. So, how do we make these resolutions? How do we do this? Paul says that God is going to fulfill every resolve for good and turn them into works of faith by His power. 
He's saying that in our text this morning. So let's look at resolutions and what it, what it is. A resolution is a resolve or a desire or a purpose or a goal. A resolution is any activity of the mind and the will towards a specific purpose and goal. Specifically, that's what I mean when I use the word resolution this morning. I'm not talking about our typical American New Year's resolutions. I'm not talking about I'm going to read a book every month this year. I'm going to learn a new language in 2021. I'm talking about I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to stop sinning the way that I've been sinning. God saves us by His grace alone. Sorry, I have my points out of order, but it'll make sense here in a second. Um, sorry. In, in America, these resolutions that we have are good resolutions. It's good resolutions, but those aren't the things that we ought to be concerned with. That's not what Paul is talking about in this passage. He's talking about resolutions that are good for our souls. He's talking about sanctification through Jesus. Now these typical resolutions that we see, I think that might be why resolutions have fallen off in the church a little bit. Because when most people make a New Year's resolution, what they're saying is, I'm going to do this by my own power. I'm going to make myself a better person. But we know we can't talk like that. There we go. That's what I meant by my points are out of order. We know we can't talk about that because we know that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. So in response to this, I think some people go completely the other direction. And they say, all right, well, I can't make myself a better person. Um, I can't be better, so I'm just going to wait for God to do it. I'm just going to sit here and plan it out and wait for God to be the one to work in my life in His good time and His good pleasure and, uh, and make me better. But that's just as wrong as the typical American response of, I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. Because that is not dependent on God's power. That's floating. That's saying, I'm content with living in my own sin. Until God is you know, going to change it, I'm not going to do anything different. But Paul tells us over and over again in his letters to flee from sin. 
to flee from that indwelling corruption in our lives that is causing us to sin. We can't float through our lives towards a, in a current that's flowing towards destruction. Clearly, Paul in this text is expecting that Christians will be making resolutions and relying on God's power to fulfill them. He's not prescribing something here. He's not telling them, this is what you should do. Remember, this is a prayer. He's telling them this is what God is going to do. He's simply saying, this is what mature Christians are doing. This is what mature Christians do. They make resolutions in faith, and they rely on God's power to work them out. So what kind of resolutions should we be making? He's going to, let's see. He's going to make us worthy of our calling, fulfill every resolve and every work of faith by His power. God takes our resolutions for sanctification and he turns them into works of faith that he accomplishes by his power. God is the one doing this. God is the one that is fulfilling your resolutions and giving you the power to follow through with it. How do we get the power to follow through with our resolutions? And I say the same way that Paul did 1900 and some odd years ago in this letter. We do it through prayer. I'm confident that with a little reflection and a little bit of practice, we can see in the course of our lives the things that lead us down a path where we succumb to the major sins that we struggle with. I'm not talking about like little flare-ups on the interstate when somebody almost runs you off the road and you say a lot of awful things about them, even though they can't even hear you. That's not the kind of sin that I'm talking about. The kind of sin that I'm talking about is those major habitual sins that we get stuck in. The big ones in our lives. I'm confident that God will show these things to you because I've tried it. I've been doing it for years. I'm not very good at it, but I know that it can be done. You can look at your life and see where those giant patches of sin and corruption are. I also know this because Scripture tells me that it's possible. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You want to know how to escape? Do you see those moments in your life where you're heading down a path and you're about to sin, and do you see 
the red flags that God is throwing up for you? Do you see the way that God is providing for you to cry out to him in that moment for salvation? To cry out to him, to resist temptation and to flee. So, if your sin, if your resolution is to stop drinking underage and you're already at the party with your first shot of tequila in your hand, it's too late. It is going to be incredibly hard for you to put that down, say no, turn the other way and leave. The moment for you to resist temptation, to rely on God's power, was when your friends invited you to the party. Before you even went, it was the decision that you made to go to that party knowing that you were going to be tempted there to drink underage. When your friend invited you to the party, that's also the chance that you have to be a witness for Jesus Christ in front of them and tell them why you don't want to do that anymore. Tell them who saved you out of that and what the hope is that he has given you. The time to rely on God's power for salvation, to fulfill your resolution, to stop having sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend is not when you're cuddled up on the couch at 11 p.m. alone in your apartment. The time to cry out to God to fulfill that resolution in your life is when your boyfriend or girlfriend invites you over to their house and you know you're going to be alone. The time is when you set boundaries and tell your Christian's brother and Christian brothers and sisters to hold you accountable to what God has called you to, to have them let you access to your location on their phone. Say to your other no, I, I can't go over. My curfew's 10 p.m. My roommates know about it. They know where I'm going to be. They know that if I'm not there, they're going to call me and they know where we're at, so we're probably going to come knock on our door. We can't do this. That's when you should be relying on God's power. And these are just two outrageous examples. There are plenty of examples along the way. For instance, talk about our road rage incident earlier. The time to rely on God's power to resist the temptation to get angry and upset when somebody cuts you off in the interstate is not while you're driving. The time to rely on God's power in that moment is before you get in the car. To pray, to cry out to God, to know, I know I struggle with this. God, I need your power to help me. God, I need you to work in my life. If we take the time to look at our sins, to look through our lives and reflect on what's going on, we will hear him telling us the ways that we are stumbling and we will see those moments when they come up. We will see those red flags and we will be able to call out to him in prayer and know and expect in faith that he will turn that into a work 
of faith, that he will turn that into action and work powerfully in our lives. And we won't succumb to sin anymore until someday we never succumb to sin anymore in heaven. Until someday we finally are free of it for good. So if you come to this new year or really at any other point in your life and you pose this question to yourself, in order to change the things in my life that I don't like, in order to change this sin in my life and change the pattern and course of my life in the direction that I'm going, should I make resolutions? This verses, these verses have the answer. We should make resolutions for the course of our sanctification, for the cause of becoming more like Jesus. Those are the resolutions that matter in the scope of eternity. 10,000 years from now, it's not going to matter how many pounds you lost in 2021. It's not going to matter if you had a boyfriend or a girlfriend in 2021. It's not even going to matter if you got married in 2021 or if you learned 10 new languages in 2021. It doesn't matter. What matters 10,000 years from now is where you are. What matters 10,000 years from now is your eternal destination, not your present circumstances. What matters 10,000 years from now is what you did with the calling that you received to life and salvation. Did you work on becoming more like Jesus in 2021? That matters. Did you share your faith with your coworker in 2021? That matters. Did you rid, get rid of a major area of sin in your life? That matters. In a few moments, we're going to have the band come back up and uh, we're going to go through our time of communion. Uh, here at Aletheia, we take communion every week and it's a time where we get to look back and reflect on our lives for the week. It's a time where we get to look back this year specifically on an entire year of things that happened in 2020 that might be good, that might be bad. And we get to reflect on that and we get to look forward to what Jesus is going to do in our lives in the coming year. As you're sitting there preparing to take communion, I want you to reflect on that. I want you to take a moment, just a moment or two, and, and think about what God is calling you to do with your life here in the coming year. Think about how he wants you to become more like his son.